Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Exploration, discovery, wonder. Just some of the words to describe being in Canada's parks, big and small, city, provincial and national. Canadians rightly boast of the country's vast natural spaces, inviting all to hike, bike and camp under the trees and close to wildlife. But climate change is touching these havens too. Extreme heat led to disaster for majestic Mount Robson just over a year ago. Now rebuilding is underway, offering insights into how to help parklands withstand the threats climate change poses. TikTok is a social media powerhouse, so it was only a matter of time before some young people began combining humor, advice, and warnings about a warming planet. Two of them talked to me and each other. Also, Environment Canada's first head of Indigenous science and how to account for emissions from logging. A new study says the government's numbers don't add up. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. So that lovely sound is from a place I am longing to visit. It's near Berg Lake, and it's on majestic Mount Robson in the Rockies near the BC-Alberta border. It's actually been closed to hikers for nearly a year and a half. But CBC Vancouver reporter Rihanna Schmunk was granted permission to see the after-effects of last year's heat dome, and now the rebuilding that is taking place with the shifting climate in mind. It's the first work of its kind in BC, and it could become a template for parks across Canada. Rihanna is here with me to tell me more. Hi, Rihanna. Hi, Laura. So we're hearing the sound of the river that's flowing near Berg Lake right now, but let's start from the beginning, Rihanna. You took a trip up to Mount Robson Provincial Park in August, so set the scene for us. Yeah, I drove up to Vale Mount with GP Mendoza. He's a video producer here, um, and it's about nine hours from Vancouver, just on the BC-Alberta border. And Mount Robson is another half hour or so out of town. It's the second oldest provincial park in BC. It's the tallest mountain in the Canadian Rockies, part of a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So it's, you know, a big, beautiful location. And as you drive from Vale Mount to the base, you're on this very remote, winding part of the Yellowhead Highway. You know, nothing on either side, but this thick, thick forest. And as you're going along, you're thinking... Is that it? Is that mountain it? Because you're in the Rockies, there's lots of mountains. Are you telling me, though, that you drove nine full hours and then you decided you had to get there right away? Well, we got into town and it was sunset. We had some light left and <laughs> we just kind of looked at each other and went, yeah, we can make it. Like, let's go get back in the truck and, and race there before before it gets dark. So, yeah, we did. We hopped back in the truck and out we went. And Mount Robson kind of reveals itself as you round this slow corner of the highway. And we were both um, blown away, to say the least. It's just perfectly centered in the road. 
in front of you and you feel silly for thinking that any other mountain could have been it. It's so obviously different and you can hear our reaction to seeing it for the first time here. Oh, there. there it is. Whoa. whoa. That's crazy. It literally just whoa. like pops up at you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's huge. Well, literally everyone's stopping. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Look at that. Okay, you guys sound actually more like tourists than journalists there. <laughs> Listen, it's a little hard not to. Um, but thousands of people, you're right, you know, thousands of people that are tourists, they chase that feeling every year and, and they chase it up the Berg Lake Trail, which is the route that takes you up Mount Robson. It follows the route of the Robson River. It's immensely popular. Um, more than 140,000 people visited in 2019 pre-pandemic. And these are people from all over the world, North America, Europe, Asia, even more popular in recent years because it's just so Instagrammable. And the trail itself is 42 kilometers round trip, and it leads you up to Berg Lake, which is this vibrant blue lake. And it's fed by two glaciers on the north face of Mount Robson. Okay, anyone out there listening, in case you doubt it, I am green with envy of you being able to see this place. Um, I'm looking forward to hiking it when it reopens, but but you, you didn't really hike it, did you? You kind of cheated a little bit. A little bit, a little bit. Um, we had no choice, I will say. Uh, the trail's been closed to the public for two seasons now because it needs repairs. So Mount Robson Provincial Park Manager, Elliot Ingalls, he took us up by helicopter to tour the area. Now just below us is uh, Whitehorn Campground, and then directly under SGB you can see the trail's just gone, so the trail goes straight... We touched down near Marmot Campground at Berg Lake, and in the middle of summer this would usually be a place that's just packed with people. Elliot Ingalls said it would be from the air, you know, looks like it's crawling with little ants all over the place. Uh, but these days it's quiet. All we can hear is the sound of the river or the wind going through the trees. Um, and we spoke with Elliot by that river. Yeah, we're kind of standing in the middle of paradise, I guess. It's kind of one of the most beautiful places, I think, in the world. Yeah, you can't really beat it. Most people who do the trail overnight, they use Berg as that turnaround spot. Um, the footsteps you can hear now is GP walking along the lake's edge around midday. It's a little windy up there, but otherwise we had the most immaculate, perfect summer day. All right, I am not going to go on and on about my jealousy, but it does sound like such a beautiful place. Unfortunately, it was seriously damaged during the heat dome that hit BC back in June of 2021. What happened? So those two glaciers above Berg Lake, they just started melting furiously. Keep in mind, the lake is at 1,600 meters elevation. So that's halfway up the distance to base camp on Everest. Even that high up the mountain, temperatures hit 37 degrees Celsius during the heat dome. That is wild that it was that hot. Super unnatural for that area. So the water just gushing off those glaciers, goes rushing down the mountain, and it starts overwhelming the Robson River. I can't imagine what that must have been like because, I mean, I, I can't imagine the heat having lived through it here in the lower mainland. But up there, to have that kind of heat, that kind of reaction must have just been stunning for the people who were there. Elliot Ingalls, he'd worked in the park for five years, and he said he's never seen anything like it, and he remembers very clearly what it looked like. We were watching the glaciers. It looked like they were sweating. They were, you could see water, visibly seeing water, like pooling off of the glacier. The volume of water 
combined with the hot weather and then a couple of big storms that, that seem to connect with each other is what created this major event. Like, I mean, this area was underwater. This bridge was underwater. Yeah, it was, it was like nothing I've ever seen in, in my lifetime working in parks. This brings back, in a really different way, the atmospheric river last November, where we saw waters rising and wiping out parts of highways and bridges. But this is during the heat dome. All the water is rushing down the mountain. So I got to ask, what happened to the trail? The damage is obvious in almost every part of the trail, not just up at Berg Lake. As the river is rushing down the mountain, it carved out a new path for itself, took out entire chunks of the trail, just tossing that land to the side. So there are sections of the trail that are just gone. And this was happening, keep in mind, on the Canada Day long weekend. So you can imagine just how busy the trail would have been. And when they did make the decision to close the park because water is overwhelming bridges, you know, we have to shut this down. There's still roughly 250 people up the trail. Wow. Um, so, you know, rescue crews just descend on the park. They got to get people out. And hikers who were on the lower part of the trail, they were able to walk themselves out through the flood water. It's this brown, you know, rushing cold, cold glacier water, but they're able to hike out, you know, you can see them waist deep and everything. But more than 25 people were stuck up at a higher elevation and they had to be airlifted out. They were sending helicopters up to bring people back down to safety. And that included a five-month-old baby. Was anyone hurt? No, no. Uh, You know, Elliot Ingalls said everyone made it down safely, which was a testament to the rescue operation. But of course, most of the trail was in bad shape, either as I said, completely gone or covered in debris. 20 tons of rocks covering a bridge that had sat there for 20, 30 years, the river coming up 30, you know, 30 feet. Just like to fathom that it within a couple of days, water can change that much, like that it could go up that much is just, I don't know, it, to me it's, it's so unbelievable and it, it really speaks to the event and how just how unbelievable nature can be. We knew it was happening, we knew it was coming, but the severity of it was not nothing that we could have imagined. And by it, he means the flood water. They saw it rising slowly, but they didn't think it was going to get that bad. And it's hard to believe when he's talking about it. I said this to him while we were there. It sounds like you're exaggerating. It sounds like this isn't real. But when you see that damage in real life, you know that he's not. So, so what is going on now at Mount Robson? It's been more than a year after all of the damage. Are efforts underway to, to try to make it open to tourists again? Yeah. BC Parks is working to rebuild the trail. So they've divided the route into thirds, and they're going to start with the lower part first so they can reopen that for day use for people and work their way up. And each third is going to take about a year to finish. So this is going to be a very long process. And the challenge through all of it is going to be figuring out how do we do this? How do we rebuild the trail so it can better withstand future climate crises? Right, because extreme weather, climate change, they aren't going away. No. This won't be the last time Mount Robson faces a heat wave or a flood. Climate change means both of those things are more likely to happen again. The glaciers will keep melting. And Elliot Ingalls, he already sees those changes. The glaciers are smaller than when he took over managing Mount Robson Provincial Park. And that was only five years ago. We're watching the glaciers recede. The north face of Mount Robson visibly has less snow and ice on it. 
in the last five years, we can visibly see the mountain shifting, rock moving, and I mean, that's inevitable, but it seems faster and more frequent. So it makes me think that if they're going to rebuild this, they have to rebuild it with these kinds of changes in mind. What are they doing along the trail? It really ranges. They're relocating tent platforms, rebuilding bridges, reinforcing riverbanks, and elevating or rerouting trail sections that were wrecked. And when I say elevating, they're essentially moving everything up so that if a flood happens again, if those waters rise again, it will be more likely to survive. And while we were there, crews were working on building new bridges around Kinney Lake, which is a little bit closer to the trailhead. Look at that. Really is a small. Oh, so this is a perfect example. Like this is a trail that's you're lifting it up. Yeah, we're raising it, um, and the bridge that was here was a bit too low, and it was at the end of its life. So we're replacing it at the same time as raising it a bit, so it's more resilient for the high water right. events. Okay, million dollar question. How do they know the new infrastructure is actually going to withstand the effects of climate change? Since we don't know exactly what is going to happen. Um, what weather is going to come, how severe it will be? It's a good question. There is no universal standard dictating when a park can be officially declared climate resilient. And even if there was, it would be a moving target because the climate is shifting. It depends on emissions. It's always going to be this moving target. Uh, Brian Menunis is a Canada research chair in Glacier Change who volunteers his time as a consultant for BC Parks, and he joined us for the day up the trail. When we talk about climate resiliency, we have to take the best scientific evidence and prepare for that. But we also know that if emissions continue as they're expected to without substantial mitigation, that resiliency will be outdated. So speaking to Brian by the river there, something else he mentioned as a good sign that infrastructure is withstanding climate change is that it falls apart naturally it reaches the end of its natural lifespan instead of being destroyed by an extreme event. So you're talking about bridges that just sort of rot and boards fall down, that sort of thing that I've seen along trails. Yeah, just die of old age instead of being uh, taken out by a flood or a fire or some other kind of disaster. And to make their decisions, the team is looking at making the best decision they can with as much data as they can. They're looking at climate predictions, aerial surveys, high-tech 3D laser imaging known as LIDAR scanning. They're considering engineering principles, on-the-ground expertise from park staff. They're consulting with Indigenous communities. As many factors as they can to make the most educated decisions that they can. And, of course, with every project, they have to find the best option, ideally, for the least amount of money. Well, that's got to be important because um, I remember from the atmospheric river damage last year, it cost and is still costing a lot of money to rebuild. So what's all of this work costing? BC's Ministry of Environment has budgeted $1.75 million for the first third of the work. It's too early to say how much the other two thirds will cost. Okay, <laughs> that seems like a lot of money. Um, but at the same time, Rihanna, Mount Robson actually isn't the only park in Canada that's facing this kind of damage that's caused by climate change. No. Jasper National Park in Alberta just saw more serious wildfire this summer. Prince Edward Island National Park is in the process of actually relocating infrastructure in the park to move it away from the coastline to protect it from erosion that's happening with rising sea levels. And other parks in the future will come up against this issue of rebuilding after a climate disaster. 
Brian Menunis says the decisions that they do make at Mount Robson could become the blueprint for those other parks across the country. This is perhaps one of the clearest manifestations of, of climate change that we see. We have an event which caused a tremendous amount of water to be flowing in, into the creeks, flooding, trapping people, and also taking out that infrastructure. And so seeing that and, and the work that's being done now is in some cases leading the pack for perhaps other parks and how they may adapt and respond and build a more resilient a framework for the a future climate. I phoned Daniel Scott to ask him about this as well, and he leads the climate change program at Waterloo University, and he's been researching the intersection of tourism and climate change for decades. He agrees the work that's going on at Mount Robson will be a model for the tourism industry in Canada as a whole. It's a good learning moment for the rest of them, um, you know, to follow a process or, or an example of what worked well, um, what didn't work well, and then learn from that and move forward. Now, rebuilding parks across the country, I mean, it's important because they're incredible places to visit um, and they're so worthwhile for all of us to see. But there's also an economic factor at play, right? Yes. Mount Robson is a hugely important part of the economy in Vale Mount. Hikers on the trail who stay there on their way, they bring in roughly $2.4 million in revenue every year, which is roughly 20% of Vale Mount's tourism revenue. And the story is the same for other small towns across Canada that depend on that foot traffic from park visitors. So the trails will be rebuilt to survive climate change so that tourists can continue to go. But there's a little bit of a dilemma there because travel, especially air travel, contributes to carbon dioxide emissions in the first place. Okay, I'd say that's dilemma with a capital D. <laughs> and then you can understand why there's that kind of feeling about it. So is there a solution? Daniel Scott says it is a huge challenge, but there's some good news. A starting point would be making parks more accessible by greener forms of transport, like electric cars or public transportation. In the meantime, though, Daniel Scott says provinces might need to reconsider their target markets for tourism. You know, they might need to move their focus away from people who have to travel overseas. They can look at, well, how do we attract more people from California or a regional market that can be decarbonized as opposed to going after or trying to increase, say, the, the Chinese market or Japan or, or even, you know, the German market. Um, and, and, and in a way, just not marketing. If they come, they come. Um, but don't try to chase those markets because those are the hardest ones to decarbonize. So if you want your tourism policy to be consistent with your climate policy, you'll have to look at how do you change your market segments as well. Elliot Ingalls, the park manager, he has a little bit of a different theory. So realistically, he knows that people are always going to come to beautiful places like Mount Robson. It's always been that way. Where are there places like that? People are always going to come. But he thinks that you can use that exposure to educate tourists, use that experience to say, hey, these are the places that are at stake if we don't make progress on climate change. This is what we stand to lose. And if people are moved by those breathtaking places, maybe they go home and they feel a little bit more committed to make sustainable change in their lives. And Brian Menunis agrees with that. It seems hard to reconcile those two, but I think through education and awareness, people seeing the parks themselves outweighs perhaps in some cases the cost of traveling and visiting those parks. 
it's a bit of a bargain, isn't it? Let's hope that it works out in favor of that majestic natural world around us and Mount Robson itself. Rihanna, thanks for taking us there to learn about the work going on. Thank you so much for having me. And you can look for more about Rihanna Schmunk's visit to Mount Robson at cbc.ca slash news. There will be a story there with photographs of what is a stunning part of the world. So how are extreme weather and climate change affecting the areas of wilderness that you love, the parks you play in? Let us know. Our email is earth at cbc.ca, or you can just go to the contact link on our webpage. I have certainly noticed in the last few months here in the Lower Mainland just how dry the forests are in the parks, and the reservoirs are obviously low, but holy cow, it was a relief to see the rains finally return to our area, to what is a rainforest. So go rain. More and more will be very welcome here. We've heard a lot of stories on this program about climate disasters in Indigenous communities, from flooding on reserves to remote First Nations threatened by wildfire. But Indigenous peoples are also an important part of the solution to climate change. Merle Ballard knows that well. She's an assistant professor in the Faculty of Science at the University of Manitoba. She's Anishinaabe from Lake St. Martin First Nation. And she's taken on the challenge of bringing Indigenous knowledge inside government. Ballard is the first director of Environment and Climate Change Canada's brand new division of Indigenous Science. Indigenous science is a science of Indigenous peoples. It's a science of the way of knowing the land. It's a way of knowing the water, the air, everything about the earth, their knowledge of the weather patterns, their knowledge of how species migrate, their knowledge of directions, the way the sun hangs, the way the wind blows, stuff like this, the way the water sounds, the way the leaves rustle. So it's this knowledge that has enabled them to survive. And one example can be found in Ballard's own research. It looks at what Indigenous languages reveal about local ecosystems. Our language has a scientific management tool that's embedded within the language and the root of the language. We have words for various spaces and places right across the country that are very significant to the natural state of the ecosystem. We have, for example, the naming of streams, uh, the way uh, streams flow. We have namings of the natural flow of waters. We have words when uh, the fish start to spawn. And we have words like that that are very significant as biological monitors uh, throughout our language. They're the indicators of the state of the ecosystem and the way it was before to the present. Ballard's job is to help the government find ways to bring Indigenous science into its policies. How is she doing this? Through a process she calls bridging, braiding, and weaving. Bridging means raising awareness about Indigenous science within the government. Braiding? That's when Western scientists work together on research with Indigenous peoples on the land. And weaving? The weaving process will be when uh, the government, when the department ECCC starts weaving Indigenous and Western science for better informed decision making. 
You heard her say ECCC there. That's Environment and Climate Change Canada in the long form. Dominique Henry is one of Ballard's colleagues. She's a wildlife researcher with ECCC. Henri has been working for about a decade and a half to collaborate on research with Indigenous partners in the Arctic and the subarctic. Most recently, she worked with Inuit partners to study the impact of climate change on polar bears. Her team talked to hunters and community members about how they can tell whether bears are fat and healthy from their footprints. The bear biologists within our team learned tremendously from listening to elders' stories and, and narratives. And reciprocally, um, I've, I personally uh, learned a lot about polar bears through this work. And it's just been beautiful to see how it's just different parts of a puzzle, right? Science doesn't know it all. Inuit don't know it all either. And by putting those pieces together, then you just have such a more rich, fuller picture of what's going on. Henri says those partnerships aren't easy to forge, but having Ballard in this new role within the government, she says, will help. The key thing when working with Indigenous partners on these things is to make sure that uh, we embrace a process that is reciprocal, mutually beneficial, ethical, and to do engagement right really takes time and capacity. And so this team has a crucial role to play moving forward. And I hope that uh, we can learn from this all and that other departments can then also uh, create similar structures and that other initiatives can sprung across the country because I think this is the future. This approach of mobilizing multiple ways of knowing in environmental conservation is, is really needed, I would say, to address the ecological crisis we are facing now. Using Merle Ballard's own terms, she's at the bridging and braiding stages of her work. During her first few weeks in government, she's been organizing presentations, inviting government scientists to learn from Indigenous experts on environmental issues. And she's confident that the work is already making a difference. Oh, we're creating change. I know we are because uh, we're getting a lot of interest from within the government. They want to know about the work we're doing. We're not quite there yet. There's a lot of work to be done and uh, we'll get there eventually. Yeah, just takes time. And we will check in again with Merle Ballard in the coming months to find out how her work is going. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Hello. Hi, Hazel. Can you hear me? Hi. Oh, oh yay. yay. Okay, we did it. And Karishma, can you hear Hazel? I can hear Hazel. Hi. Perfect. We did it. Well, Hazel Thayer and Karishma Porwell are TikTok creators with tens of thousands of followers each who think the social media site can be part of a climate solution. So have you two ever actually spoken to each other? We no. have not spoken have no. over the phone like this. Maybe on like DM or yeah. on Discord. But yeah, hey, I'm but just now realizing that too. I'm like, oh yeah, my good internet friend. And then um, <laughs> actually, no, we've never talked. <laughs> well, there you go. You you know, say hi to each other. <laughs> hi, nice to finally talk to you, Karishma. 
Yeah, you as well. See, that's the thing about internet friends, Hazel. I feel like I already know you, but like, <laughs> yeah, could you call it a TikTok relationship? Mm. <laughs> My TikTok <Internet> friends. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly they know each other to a degree, but there's lots of us out there who don't know them. So I asked them to introduce themselves. So my name is Karishma. I live in Ontario, Canada. I live in Waterloo. And my TikTok handle is underscore make earth great again. I started kind of speaking about environmentalism and the climate crisis on social media during the pandemic because like a lot of other people, I found myself with a lot of free time. Um, and also, I think a lot of the cracks in our society started to show around that time. And my passion was always around climate. So I just decided to start talking about it on the internet. In my real life, I work in sustainable finance. And I also am studying my master's in sustainability leadership, which is really exciting. Some of my hobbies include uh, thrift shopping, gardening, road tripping. That's cool. me. Okay. Hey, this, is, this is why I feel like we're already friends because I already know what all your hobbies are. <laughs> <laughs> Hazel, over to you. Hi. Um, okay. I'm Hazel. I live in Victoria, BC. On the internet, almost everywhere, my at is Hazel is online, except for on TikTok, where I am economy mommy. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason for that is uh, because I talk a lot about the intersection of economics and climate solutions, but I try to do it with like a little Gen Z sense of humor. Economics and climate solutions don't sound super related, but they really, really are. And a lot of young people are like under the impression of you have to either have a healthy economy or a healthy climate, and you don't get to have both. And I went to school for economics, and I found out that no, actually, we can totally have both. And in fact, it would be better for the economy if we had a healthy climate. It would be better for the climate if we had a healthy economy that worked for everybody. And so I guess what I do online is try to make fun communications videos about understanding you know, complex economic concepts like externalities and elasticity and carbon taxes. So making taxes funny is my... Uh, <laughs> I guess that's my tagline. Yeah, I, I feel like economics and like specifically environmental economics should have the same treatment that science and climate science has had lately, you know, people to make it fun and interesting and accessible. So I guess I'm trying to be that person. And when you're not online? When I'm not online, I'm always online. Um, <laughs> when I'm not online, I do uh, website development and I've, I've been rollerblading a lot lately, so that's fun. <laughs> and I have a cat whose name is Blue, and she has not started meowing yet, but I know she will soon. So. Okay, thank you for warning us. <laughs> <laughs> now, based on what you guys said earlier, I, I'm, I'm figuring the answer to this next question is yes, but do you two watch each other's TikToks? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> okay, what, what have you learned from each other? Let's start with you, Hazel. Ooh, I was just going through your videos again um, to like refresh my memory, and I remember the, the video about all of the toxins that are in like consumer stuff that we are meant to buy and even give to our kids was like so surprising when I watched it. And, and then I was surprised again when I watched it again. And like, I feel like when I do videos, I'm a little bit more like big picture. And so seeing you just be like, here's an example of something that you can do that actually makes a difference is very nice to see. And I love seeing those. That's an interesting contrast. Karishma, what have you learned from Hazel's TikToks? Yeah, I mean, well, thank you, Hazel. Always nice to be guessed up like that. <laughs> I think, Hazel, your TikToks are super technical. And I think they do that important work of like laying a base of understanding when it comes to actually assessing what is the climate crisis and how does it intersect with these other systems in which we operate and we live. I'm saving Hazel's TikToks for when I'm at like a dinner and someone tells me that 
carbon taxes suck or you know <laughs> um how how can we how can we sacrifice the economy for for the tree huggers and i feel like hazel's tiktoks provide me with the ammunition to answer those questions hazel comes with the facts and i've always appreciated that oh hey. man that, that's that's what it's all about giving people things to say at dinners <laughs> <laughs> well you're both actually quite new to the platform but you have large followings already karishma what do you think that says about the reach of the platform? I think TikTok can be a hit or miss platform. Either nobody watches your videos or a lot of people watch your videos, way more than the amount of people you might have following you. And it's never know. the ones you expect to do well. Exactly, exactly. Like the ones that you put hours of like editing work in, those will be kind of meh. But I find that like if I see something that makes me angry, if I see something that makes me, you know, super energized to talk about something, something that I'm passionate about, and I just film something without thinking twice, those videos can actually do really well and get a lot of traction. I don't know. What do you, what yeah. do you think? That is, that's so true. Yeah. I feel like the ones where I put a ton of effort into like scripting and editing and stuff don't do amazing. But when I'm so fired up about something that I just read that I need to record it immediately, those are always the ones that blow up. Um, Maybe that's because so you're, br I guess that, you're bringing your heart into it more, I think more that, than your I mind. I think that's what it is. I'm trying to do more of that now. Yeah. It's like, it's a platform that's like for people to be informal on. And like, it feels like you're talking to a friend a lot of the times instead of watching like a complex, you know, super produced YouTube video. Well, what I think we need to do now is hear some of your recent efforts. Karishma, let's let's listen to a bit of one of your recent TikToks. A lot of the time people ask me, Karishma, what can I do to help the environment? But a lot of the time, it's more about what you don't do. For example, it's fall time and there's leaves on the ground. Exhibit A, B, C. Ooh, that's a pretty one. So the government, your neighbors, Country Living Magazine, whoever it might be, might want you to rake up your leaves and stuff them into plastic trash bags. Here's a few reasons to just leave the leaves. Now, that's it. obviously when you can see the TikTok, you can see the leaves behind you in the background <laughs> as you're talking. But you posted that one just a few days ago. What kind of response have you had to it? That one actually did really well. And um, I'm glad it did because it's a timely one. I had a lot of fun filming that. Like I was up at Kilbear Provincial Park this weekend camping. Um, and it was actually the first time that I touched my phone the entire weekend. I was like, you know what? I want to film a video about raking leaves because so many people do it. Um, and it's actually much better for the planet to just not do it. And right before leaving, I'd had a conversation with my dad who he already doesn't rake the leaves because we've talked about this before. But he was like, oh, I wish our neighbors didn't rake the leaves. And he, I was like, you know what's the perfect time to film a, a TikTok about that because it's seasonal. People want to see fall content. And it did really well. I got a lot of comments saying, I didn't know any of this. I'm just going to leave my leaves now. And people saying, oh, okay, pays to be lazy, pays to be lazy in terms of, <laughs> you know, environmental stewardship. And so I think it did well because it was lighthearted. It was, you know, festive, um, fall time, fall vibes. But I think the main reason these videos do well is because it's really accessible for people. It, it's such an easy thing to do for the planet and mm -hmm. actually make a difference in your immediate space in your kind of community. And I think that just makes it accessible and makes people feel like they can make a difference in the climate crisis, which I 100% believe that they can. Now, Hazel, speaking about accessibility, you recently tackled a subject that we've covered on our program that might not be considered as easy to tackle as leaving the leaves on the ground. You tackled the Montreal Protocol. Let's listen to that. <laughs> 
How did we fix the ozone layer? Uh, by panicking about it. <laughs> well, the cause of the ozone layer depletion was CFCs, or chlorofluorocarbons, chloro chemical used in lots of different stuff, notably hairspray. In the 70s, scientists noticed this ozone depletion and panicked for about a decade before governments finally noticed. Countries came together and agreed not to use CFCs anymore in the Montreal Protocol, which was hailed as one of the most successful international agreements in history. Because of that treaty, we don't look like rotisserie chickens. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and what, what did you hear from your followers about that one? Yeah, whenever I talk about um, previous policy wins, um, so the Montreal Protocol is a, a big one, uh, how we fixed acid rain is another one. People really like that because I feel like it's not really known why we don't hear about the ozone layer anymore. And there are a lot of like climate deniers who have theories about, oh, we don't hear about the ozone layer anymore. Now they're just on to the next crisis. Actually, this was in response to a comment that I got about people panicking. Why, are, why is everybody panicking about the climate crisis? We panicked about the ozone layer. We're not panicking about that anymore. And so that was why I said, because scientists panicked. And so speaking up about these things has an impact. And we have been able to come together globally to solve a huge climate crisis before. And we can absolutely do it again. And so the response to that was was very positive. People like hearing that. Now you use a lot of humor in your subjects and in your TikToks. Is that important? Are you consciously using that? Oh, yeah, definitely. I actually loved uh, your guys' episode about using comedy and oh, climate. Oh, Chuck um, Nice, yes. The comedian, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely partial to that. I think that people, like people who are not in the climate movement, obviously, either see it as being very dismal, especially economics, or, you know, a little bit like sanctimonious, like everybody needs to go vegan and, and save the planet. And so using humor kind of makes it more accessible of like, this is something that you should care about. And this is something that like, I can explain to you while having fun with in a kind of safe, non-judgmental kind of a way. Okay. And now, now, Karishma, you make TikToks as well about your Indian background. How do you think culture and climate intersect? What a great question. I think for the longest time, I would say for the last decade or so, climate change and the climate movement itself has kind of been viewed as being exclusive to like the white space. And while, you know, I personally think that there's room and there's a need for climate activists of all backgrounds, I think that certain perspectives and certain actions that can be taken on the climate crisis that come from different cultures, whether that be from people of color, whether that be from Asian cultures, whether that be from indigenous peoples, which I think is especially poignant here in Canada, I think that's been largely ignored. Um, and I think that's actually a grave mistake, which is why I like to speak on my Indian, my Asian culture intersecting with the climate crisis and, and intersecting with how to be sustainable in the first place, because I think a lot of these cultures had got it right for a long time. Indigenous people here in Canada, I can speak to my own experiences as an Indian woman and just kind of hearing the way my elders speak to me about sustainability. Just hearing, especially my nanny, she's my maternal grandmother, hearing her speak on just her worldview is so healing and it, you know, just considers the planet and people and kindness and mindful living. It's very much interwoven into her worldview. And I think that that percolated down to me and, and to the rest of my family as well. And I think that this way of thinking should be shared with the rest of the world. And I think that diversity is the only way to approach the climate crisis because, of course, it affects everybody. Well said, Karishma. But I'm wondering... As with any social media site, there is a darker side to TikTok. I mean, how do you deal with abusive comments, which I'm unfortunately sure that you get? Yeah, I mean, I think especially on TikTok, 
it's much worse than other platforms because there's a lot more of these faceless accounts with no username, with no identity. And so people feel, people then have the courage to say a lot of things that they wouldn't be saying in person to anybody's face, right? And so they're leaving comments that wouldn't even be spoken out loud in like an in-person public space. When I first started out on TikTok, I thought I had to respond to all of these comments. Um, I soon learned that that was probably a waste of my time and I would probably be using my time better just educating people on misconceptions or educating people on things that they either respectfully disagree with or don't know about. But when it comes to just like mindless hate and criticism, I either delete the comment, block the person, or just not give it a second thought. In the beginning, I was it, it really did get to me because it was the first time that I was being judged off of a 10-second video. Like you would never do that in real life, right? Like you'd never hear someone talk about something for a minute and then pretend to know everything about them and then go on to insult them. So it was the first time that this was ever happening to me. Um, and so it did hurt my feelings. Like it, you know, I, I was up at night at first, but not anymore. And I'm proud to say that. <laughs> and Hazel, what about you? Yeah, um, for me, I don't, I, I don't really get a whole lot of targeted hate towards me as a person, but I do get quite a bit of like the wildest ideas I've ever heard of like some crazy climate denial of like, you know, CO2 is good for the trees or something like that. And like, oh actually the earth is getting colder. And I'm like, my first instinct is to be like, take everything in good faith and be like, oh, you don't understand. Here, I can teach you. And then as soon as I try to do that, then they start insulting you. So unless they're like, really seem like they're commenting in good faith and they actually just don't understand, usually it's but easier to just hit the block button. And I find it mostly in comments, luckily, that are easily ignored. But I, I think that a lot of it is, I'm, I'm not even sure where they get it from, the, the ideas, just like small, small misinterpretations of the facts also travel so fast that it's impossible to correct them. So we have often heard on the show from guests that one of the most important things that we can all do about climate change is just to talk about it. H how do you think your videos are part of that, Karishma? First of all, I, I definitely agree. I think climate isn't talked about enough in so many different spaces. And I think that for me, I try to make videos that fit into different niches and bring climate to that topic, whether that be fashion, whether that be diet, whether that be even like pop culture and current events. I, I try to link them to the climate crisis. So like the Met Gala or if people are talking about Kim Kardashian, how does this all lead back to the climate crisis? But I truly do believe that it does all come back to sustainability because a lot of this crazy world we live in is made up like consumer culture is something we made up and we don't consider the effects that it has on our very real atmosphere and soil and our trees and forests and our biodiversity. And I, I'm always there kind of poking my nose into situations where it doesn't belong and saying, hey, how does this relate back to everything that keeps us alive? And, and yep. Hazel, same question to you. How do you think your videos... Oh, poking my nose. Poking my nose where it doesn't belong. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> how do you think your videos fit into that larger conversation yeah. around climate? Um, I actually try to sort of make my videos echo the way I would talk about it if it was just a friend. Um, because I found that I was having a lot of these conversations of like, here's what I learned when I was studying economics when people talk about climate change. And you know, I wouldn't use big words like externalities. I would just say it in a conversational tone. And so that kind of translated over into my videos. 
you know, talking, talking about it in an accessible way is super important and in a funny way. Uh, at least I try. And I often say, like, when people ask me in comments what they can do, usually, like, the thing that I say over and over again is learn about the solutions, talk about them, and demand them. Hazel Thayer and Karishma Porwal, it's been a delight talking to you. I think you may have some new followers after this. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. This was so much fun. Okay, now here's my footnote, because I don't really want people to know that I know anything at all about the Kardashians. But um, <laughs> but I do, when you talked about the Met Gala, uh, all I could think of was at least Kim Kardashian recycled Marilyn Monroe's dress. Uh, so yeah. that was good for the climate. Not for the dress. There you go. It's the word, word after reduce and the word before recycle. It's reuse. We got to reuse it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. Uh, that she's a climate warrior. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys. Good. Thanks so much for your time, eh? Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. It's lovely to speak to you. Um, yes, Hazel. it was nice to finally sort of meet you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, have a great night, ladies. Bye. Thank you so okay, much. Bye bye. Well, the secret is out about the Kardashians. Let's just change the subject quickly now. Pop quiz! What are the biggest sources of emissions in Canada? If you're like me, your mind probably goes to cars, trucks, planes, or oil and gas extraction. But a new report says that list is missing something big. Logging. It's a claim that's been made before by Nature Canada and the Natural Resources Defence Council. But the authors say this new study shows emissions from cutting down trees are comparable to oil sands operations. And they say that's created a ticking climate bomb governments aren't accounting for. Jennifer Skeen is the Climate Solutions Policy Manager with the Natural Resources Defence Council. Jennifer, hello. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So emissions come first and foremost from burning fossil fuels. How does logging contribute to climate change? What our report shows is that logging is one of Canada's highest emitting sectors. It is on par with emissions from oil sands operations, so equivalent to about 11% of Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions, uh, which is quite a significant figure. And unfortunately, the government has not been clearly reporting this figure and as a result has not been uh, accounting for them in its overall climate strategy. Now, equating Canada's logging industry with the oil sands, that that might seem like a stretch to some who hadn't heard this before. How did you reach that conclusion? Our report draws from the government of Canada's own numbers in its national carbon uh, greenhouse gas inventory. So what we did is we looked at their reporting from uh, 2020 and also in past years and basically took the, the figures that they have for the emissions from logging directly. And then we subtracted from that emissions that are or carbon that then gets stored in long lived harvested wood products, since not all of that carbon goes immediately into the atmosphere. And then we also subtracted the emissions that are then absorbed by forests that are regrowing following logging to account for industry replanting activities. And once you put all of those numbers together, even including those second two 
figures, the number is quite significant, totaling about 75 million tons of CO2 annually. Okay, let, let's just pick this apart a little bit more because this can be some somewhat confusing. When when trees are cut down, they can't absorb any more carbon, but as long as they're not burned, they're not immediately emitting carbon either. So is it really accurate to calculate cutting down a tree as a carbon emission? The vast majority of the wood that is removed from the forest is actually oxidized or, or emitted, uh, emits its carbon very quickly because it's either burned as biomass or it's turned into short-lived products like toilet paper. And our inventory or our um, calculations, which draw from Canada's inventory, do take into account the differing timeframes at which forest products emit their carbon, some of them happening within a matter of of weeks or months, uh, or even immediately, uh, others taking a number of years. Okay, the government, which is in this point is backed by the Forest Products Association of Canada, has repeatedly said that its system of measuring emissions in the forestry sector is done by standards that are used by other countries and are accepted internationally, notably by the IPCC. What do you say to that? The way that Canada is accounting for emissions and removals from uh, natural forest dynamics, so from wildfires and then carbon removals from forests that have never been previously logged, is not in compliance with IPCC conventions. Um, I'll also add that these IPCC guidelines don't themselves apply to Canada's emissions reduction plan, which is supposed to capture all of the emissions from high impact sectors. And it does so for every sector except for the logging sector. Uh, Isn't logging folded into though the forestry and land use emissions measurements? It it is, but it is not brought out uh, as its own unique sector. It's sort of couched within these broader numbers that don't actually speak to or obfuscate the industry's direct impact. But the, uh, to my knowledge, the IPCC has never rejected Canada's accounting on this. That's right. Um, and, and Canada has pointed to that repeatedly as justification for its system. Um, but the way that the IPCC reviews country submissions is not a particularly rigorous process. It is done often by people who are not immersed in forest science, in the science around logging emissions. And so we don't think that IPCC acceptance of what Canada is doing is necessarily a, a mark of the, the, the credibility of Canada's approach. Uh, and that's, that's why we've been speaking with the government directly, asking for them to look into this issue. And we've been heartened that the government has said that they're looking into this. Now, as we know, Canada has a huge amount of forest Um, whether logged or not, and just play devil's advocate for a moment. What is wrong with the government counting uh, in its emissions reports on on forestry and land use those areas that have not been logged that are holding carbon? The way that Canada has defined its managed forest um, is a is, is, is very broad. And it has basically placed this uh, broad swath of forest under this category of managed forest that includes all of these primary forests that have never been previously logged. They're at this sort of policy interstice where they are not formally protected, but nor have they been logged yet. And 
the way that Canada is accounting for natural emissions in those forests takes a biased approach. Um, they are actually removing emissions from natural uh, disturbances, major wildfires from their inventory while simultaneously counting emissions from uh, forests that uh, have been regrowing. And it is it is disingenuous to be looking at this, these forests and basically picking the carbon, uh, the natural disturbance dynamics when they benefit the inventory and then excluding the ones that when they when they do not. If the sector, the forestry sector is emitting that much carbon, I know you want it to be calculated into Canada's overall emissions. Would the solution be, to your mind, putting limits on logging, leaving the trees in the ground as carbon sinks? There's a variety of approaches, and the first order is to get the numbers right and then start regulating them to actually and incentivize the industry to adopt to be adopting these climate-friendlier practices. The second would be ensuring that any of the infrastructure associated with industry minimizes its climate impact, uh, pursuing more selective logging approaches rather than um, clear-cutting, which is uh, basically the practice of removing all trees from a given area, which has a much more significant climate impact. Um, and then also one one other is uh, directing the uh, the wood that is being logged toward more lived more long-lived wood products rather than sending these climate critical primary forests uh, to be burned as biomass or to be, uh, quickly, you know, single-use products like toilet paper uh, that are then flushed down the toilet. But we need to be smart about how we're pursuing that and actually get the industry in alignment with climate-friendly practices and ensuring that the wood that we that is being logged is going to the products where it's actually needed. Jennifer Skeen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we did invite the Minister for Natural Resources, Jonathan Wilkinson, to be interviewed on the show, but he wasn't available. In a written statement, the government reiterated its belief that its practices are internationally accepted, but it says it's always looking for ways to improve its methods, so we'll continue to meet with the groups who authored this study. The Forest Products Association of Canada is less charitable, calling the report misleading. It says Canada does have a forest carbon problem, but that it's caused by the worsening drought, wildfire, and pests. And that is all for us this week. If you missed any of today's program, you can find it on demand at CBC Listen. And you can also subscribe to our podcast there and hear the best of what's on offer from CBC Radio. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker, Producers Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, and me. Matthias Wilson is our engineer with help from Anna Park this week. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.